Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat, church. Uh, we'll be in Genesis 42 today. If you have a Bible, Bible app. Uh, we're continuing to look at uh, the story of Joseph, and we're getting to that crucial moment where he and his brothers are going to finally understand that, that they're all there in the room, you know, and talk about reconciliation and all that good stuff. So consider this part one of two, all right? Uh, we'll talk about, kind of do part two next week. Now, this week, uh, I want to start with what I'll call the parable of the appetizer, okay? Um, I just got back from a vacation. Very grateful to DJ Iverson for taking my place last week and uh, delivering a great message. I, uh, my wife, yeah, absolutely, give the man a hand. Um, I, uh, I, uh, we, we, this was, we're at that age finally where Em and I can go on a trip and our kids can come join us later so we can actually get started without kids, which is beautiful. And then the kids can come and by that point we've kind of dated each other for a while we're restored, and now we're better parents when they, when they show up, as opposed to when they were young and everybody just screaming at each other on the drive there, everybody being wound up so tight, you know, uh, when you get there. So, so our last night, just the two of us before um, our children came and joined us, we were going to go out and have one big last splash, one date night to end date nights, one magnificent dinner experience. And we had a place picked out. It was about 30 minutes away from where we were staying. This is Palm Springs in the summer. So just five degrees cooler than hell is the temperature outside. We uh, are getting ready to leave the room, and, and I'm, we're dressed in what I would call Palm Springs chick, looking fabo, okay? My wife and I are dashing, in fact. Uh, we get ready to go, uh, and I said, yeah. I go, I'm not sure about the shoes. What do you think? I said, I, I, I want to wear shoes. She goes, no, look, we're the flip-flops. You, you, you look a lot better in, in that look with the flip-flops. And I said, I don't know. We're going to a nice place. It's kind of, yeah. I don't want to be, be like, oh, you know, what is this guy doing here? If I walk in with flip-flops and nobody else is or whatever, I'm feel weird. She's like, no, nah, you look a lot better. Go ahead and, and put the flip-flops on. I'm like, you sure? I, I think I'd rather wear shoes because you look way better. You look kind of dumb, actually, in those, in those shoes. So why don't you take them off, put the flip-flops on. She says, okay. We get in the car. We drive to this place, and we have to walk quite a distance from your car to get to the restaurant, and you have to take an elevator up a long way to get to this place. It's like in a sky tower kind of thing. And I heard somebody go, ooh, I know exactly. I was excited too. We get there, there's a placard right by the elevator with a dress code on it. And I look, and I don't see anything on there that's going to give us any trouble. We get on the elevator, we go up to the top. So we get off the elevator looking fierce, me and my wife. Okay, like, like we're going to cause people to stumble. We're, we look so good. We're walking into this place. The guy at the front says, hi, do you have a reservation? Yes, we do. Uh, and he says, okay, what? Uh, and he looks down at my feet. And he says, sir, I can't let you come in looking like that. <laughs> looking like what is what I'm thinking. I look amazing. What are you talking about? He's like, your flip-flops. And I look, my wife's wearing flip-flops. And he goes, she's fine, but you have to change your, your, your footwear. I go, wait, what? So she's fine wearing flip-flops, but I'm not fine wearing flip-flops. And then I find myself in, the, in my head, I'm going, what's the opposite of, of chauvinist? What's the opposite of chauvinist? I'm trying to find the right ad hominem attack word that I can use, but I can't dig it up. And I'm like, so you're telling me my wife's fine, but I'm not. And he's like, yes. And I said, well, well, I guess what do we do? Just go home? 
I don't keep an extra pair of shoes in my pocket, so what am I supposed to do? And he says, well, uh, most people go to the gift shop and buy socks. And I go, and, and do what with them? And he says, well, they put them on with their flip-flops. I go, what? You think people look better wearing socks with flip-flops? Unless you're a 50-year-old dude, nobody does that. That's ridiculous. This is Palm Springs in the summer. What do you mean you don't have people with flip-flops on up here? This isn't the North Pole. This is Palm Springs. And the guy, we're going back and forth, and I, was, and I said, fine. Where's the gift shop? Go downstairs and follow the sign. So I go downstairs. The gift shop is on the complete opposite side of this place. So after finding it, I walk in, and I said, do you have socks? And she goes, oh, you must be having dinner with us. I said, why, yes, I am. Thank you. I'm, maybe not much longer, but I'm, I am right now. Where are they? She points. There's a rack in the corner. I go over. There's a group of people around the sock rack. I walk up to the sock rack, and I'm looking, and of course, they've been picked over. There's like Betty Boop socks and uh, Bugs Bunny socks and all of these things, right? In the back, there's one pair of olive green dress socks. Grab them off the thing, take them. My wife will test. I go back all the way across this place to the elevator. I look back at the dress code sign, which says nothing about flip-flops. We get on the thing, we get up, we get off the elevator, and I really want, when I was, I started to do it, I get up and I wanted to go right to the guy and then just roll up my jeans, put on my socks, and, and my sexy flip-flops with my socks, and, and just kind of fold my arms at the guy. And um, instead, I, my better nature took over. I went around the corner in a very modest, distinguished fashion, put on my amazing olive green dress socks with my flip-flops, and I walked in feeling as stupid as I looked. And the guy goes, thank you, sir. I kind of ignore him and talk to the gal that's doing the thing. We go in. We sit down at the table. Now, she will tell you, my wife, my blessed wife will tell you the whole way. I go, he better make this right. He better make this right. Because I have to go down. They ring me up for the socks. 11 bucks for a pair of socks. It's like, this is a racket. That's what this is. It's a racket. They're doing this. The sock guy and the maitre d' are in this thing. Together, $11 for a pair of olive green dress socks I'm never going to use again. I buy them. We go up there. I am simmering. I'm not, even if I, on the exterior, am the jovial preacher you see before you today, <laughs> internally, I can put out a good boil. I can send a message to somebody, you know, uh, that I'm mad. So I'm sitting at that table. This dude's over in the corner still. We're finally sitting down. She's like, honey, just let it go. It's fine. Everybody's great now. You know, we're sitting at the table. Isn't it beautiful? Look at the menu. And she's doing everything in her power to make this a decent night. And I'm not, I am just not having it. I'm like, I had to go down, drive 30 minutes, come over here, you, you know. And then I, it occurs to me, you know what? I was going to wear the shoes and my wife made me put on flip-flops. So now the ice starts forming toward my wife and we start going, it's like, you know, I told you I wanted to. So we get into this whole thing. We get done and I go, he better send us a bottle of wine. He better send us an appetite, but see, he's got to make this right. So we're in there about 15 minutes, nothing. And I'm just still like this. And then finally, waiter comes over. Sir, the gentleman in the corner would like to give you guys a free appetizer. <laughs> well, tell him thank you. <laughs> uh, and he goes, uh, what would you like? And I said, uh, we'd like the, the baked brie. He says, well, unfortunately, we're out of that. <laughs> I said, of course you are. Uh, what, do you, what would you like, dear? The shrimp, okay. How many shrimp are there? 
four. Four shrimp. It's quite an appetizer. Hope we don't fill up too much, you know. I'm thinking to myself, that's fine, we'll take it. And again, I'm normally a little more mature than this, just that much more. But I'm more mature than this. He brings it out. And these suckers are amazing. These are the biggest stinking shrimp. They look like the shrimp that ate all the other shrimp. They're enormous. They're awesome. And we go on. Okay? Now, it is a small, unimportant event. But until he made it right, I was going to hold the grudge. Because it didn't seem fair to me that after driving out there, getting ready to spend all this money, trying to have a good date with my wife, that this dude had embarrassed me, caused stress in the marriage. Because, dang it, I wanted to wear the shoes. You made me wear the flip-flops. We keep going, and, and, and just the inconvenience of it and everything like that, it just doesn't feel like I'm being treated the way that I ought to be treated. Right? So then he does it, and just like that, within 30 seconds, Mr. Bluebird is on my shoulder. I'm having a great night because I feel like he's done right by me. Now, take that. I want you to think about the last time that you got a parking ticket and the other guy didn't. Uh, I want you to think about the time that their kid got signed up for that thing or got picked for that team and yours didn't. And then just keep going up in Justice Mountain. The divorce where you got hosed in the settlement the breakup, where they dumped you for one of your friends. You didn't just not get the promotion, but when the other guy got the promotion, he let you go because he felt threatened by you, even though you didn't do anything wrong. The parent who wasn't there for you when they should have been. All right? Any, any, you know where that wound is because it's still inside you like a nerve ending. Right? Injustice Mountain. The most depressing Spot in the world. Population, everyone. Joseph has every right to live there. I mean, remember, right? He was dad's favorite son. He didn't do anything wrong. What's, what's his problem? Joseph was loved by his father. What's wrong with that? Then his brothers hate him for it, so they take him. They sell him into slavery. He then goes, gets sold to an Egyptian uh, captain of the guard, he rises up in that house, does nothing wrong, and then that guy's wife has the hots for him, so she frames him for sexual assault that he didn't commit, and he ends up in jail for it, and he sits there and rots away for years. Injustice Mountain. But then, one day, Pharaoh has a dream. The big man himself has a dream. Joseph's developed a reputation for being able to interpret dreams, so Pharaoh calls him in. He nails it. Nails the interpretation. Pharaoh goes, this guy right here is wise. I need a guy like this to help us through this forthcoming famine. I want you to be number two in all of Egypt, number one country at the time. I want you to be my right hand. So he comes in. Now he's number two. And as he prophesied in Pharaoh's dream, there were seven years where there was more grain than they could have dealt with. And then there came the famine. Now, before the famine comes, Pharaoh gives him a wife. He has two children, one Manasseh, which he names Manasseh because he's praising God for helping him forget, he says, his pain and his suffering. What we're going to learn is whatever forget means, either Joseph was lying or forget doesn't mean forget. Because he's still hurt. 
That becomes obvious. His other kid, Ephraim, means twice fruitful. And uh, he's saying, because God helped me be fruitful right here in the land of my suffering. So he's processing. He's making it work. But during the famine, here comes his brothers. They're hungry. They're out of grain. Joseph controls the food supply everywhere at this point, okay? And so they come to Joseph looking for food. And Joseph asks them. He recognizes them right away. They don't recognize him. They go, hey, Joseph. They don't call him Joseph. They say, sir, sire, whatever they said. We're in need of food. And he says, tell me about your family, because I think you might be here to invade Egypt, to scope out the land. Now, he's playing games with them, really, or testing them. And so they tell him, they say, yeah, we, there's 10 of us. Uh, one of our brothers died. They were talking about, his name was Joseph. And Joseph's like, really? Interesting. Who else? We have another brother. His name's Benjamin, but he's at home with our father. But here's what happens then. Genesis, uh, well, <laughs> Joseph says to them, he goes, well, here's what I want you to do to prove that you guys are legit. I want you to go home, get your younger brother, and come back. If you don't come back, I'm going to know you're lying to me. He really just wants to see Benjamin. Genesis 42, 21 to 24. Speaking among themselves, they said, Clearly, we're being punished because of what we did to Joseph long ago. Now, he, they think he can't understand them, okay? They're speaking in Hebrew. They think he's an Egyptian and can't speak Hebrew. So they're talking in Hebrew. Speaking among themselves, they say, clearly, we're being punished because of what we did to Joseph long ago. We saw his anguish when he pled for his life, but we wouldn't listen. That's why we're in this trouble. Didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy, Reuben asked, but you wouldn't listen. And now we have to answer for his blood. Of course, they didn't know that Joseph understood them, for he had been speaking to them through an interpreter. So Joseph's playing the part of the Egyptian. Uh, you know, and the interpreter speaks to him in Hebrew so they can understand. Joseph speaks the king's Hebrew. So it's all an act. But when he hears them recount what they had done to him, it says this, now he turned away from them and began to weep. When he regained his composure, he spoke to them again. Then he chose Simeon from among them and had him tied up right before their eyes. And by the way, I left that detail out. He said, go get Benjamin. I'm going to keep one of you behind as a prisoner until you guys come back as collateral. So he picks Simeon and tells him this. Now, it says that he weeps. He has to gather himself. So he, he bolts, cries it out. Then he comes back, says, come back and bring Benjamin with you. In the meantime, I'm taking Simeon, and he can stay here with me. Now, why does he choose Simeon? Well, in all likelihood, but through process of elimination, the odds are Simeon was the one who actually threw him in the pit. And if, it's, if, if you can't nail that detail down, Simeon was at least the ranking oldest brother at the time. You may remember Reuben was off. He wasn't there. Uh, he had told him, don't kill him. So then he's off doing something, and then the brothers take him and throw him in the pit. Simeon would have been the ranking oldest brother. So that means he's the shot caller among the brothers. So Joseph grabs Simeon, even though Reuben happens to be there. He says, I'll, I'll hang on to Simeon. Okay. Joseph then fills their sacks with grain to the brim. And then he says, take all the money that they brought to pay for this grain, put it back in their bags, and send them on their way. So they get back. Jacob is there, their old man. 
Hey, guys, how'd it go? Well, interesting thing, Dad. Uh, well, where's Simeon? Well, about that. Simeon is technically, some people would call it a prisoner, a, a, a guest of Pharaoh's second in command at this point um, because he asked us a bunch of questions about the family and we told him we had a younger brother and he said he was going to hang on to Simeon until we brought Benjamin back. What? Jacob says. Well, show me what you got. They open their bags and there's all the money that he had sent with them to pay for the grain. So now he freaks out because he's like, you didn't pay for it? Like, like you stole it. It's like walking out of that dinner that I was at with my wife and not paying the check. They're going to come after you. He's like, you don't rob Pharaoh's second in command. Well, <laughs> here's what it says. Uh, Genesis 42, 55 to 56. As they emptied out their sacks, there in each man's sack was the bag of money he paid for the grain. The brothers and their father were terrified when they saw the bags of money. Jacob exclaimed, you are robbing me of my children. Joseph is gone, Simeon is gone, and now you want to take Benjamin. Everything is going against me. So Reuben, always trying to be the ever-dutiful oldest son, says something so stupid, it's funny. He goes, Dad, 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 here, here's what we'll do. Let us take Benjamin, and if I don't bring him back, then you can kill my two sons. And Jacob is like, what? Why would I want to kill my own grandchildren, you idiot? No, that's not a good plan. And so Reuben's, I, and I'm sitting there going, if I'm Reuben's kids, how do I feel about that? Hey, yeah, well, you can take my two sons if, uh, if I don't bring Benjamin back to you, all right? So that's Reuben's brilliant idea. And, and then Jacob just says, stop it. I don't need to hear anymore. Benjamin is not going, period, under any circumstances. Well, eventually, though, they run out of food again. They eat through all the grain. So now they're about to get hungry again. And that includes Benjamin because they don't have any food. So Jacob eventually says, I'm, I'm still not sending Benjamin. They say, we need more food. And he says, well, then go get more food. We can't. He won't see us if we don't have Benjamin with us. Now, keep in mind that Jacob basically has already said, good luck to Simeon. I'm not sending Benjamin. Kind of stinks to be Simeon and pretty good to be Benjamin, really. Dad's looking out for one and not the other. But Judah then says, hey, Dad, look, his blood can be on me and my family if we don't do it. I will bring him back to you. I will bring him back. Jacob really has no choice because if he doesn't do it, they're all going to starve to death. So off they go. But Jacob says first, I want you to take twice the silver that it costs for the grain. Pay him back for the first load and, give, and pay for the second load. And then he says, I want you to go around to whatever we have left on our land and pick the best of it and take it and offer it to him as a gift. So that's what they do. They show back up. And um, Joseph is so overcome by the sight of Benjamin when he sees him that he leaves the room again and sobs. And he calls a dinner with all the brothers. Now, an Egyptian would never eat with a Hebrew. So Joseph has his table. He's playing the Egyptian. And then he has a table set for all of his brothers. And Joseph says, here's the order I want you to sit in. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah. And he just orders them right in birth order. They're probably thinking to themselves, huh. Look at that. It just happened to be in our birth order. Weird. 
They sit down at their table. Joseph tells them, take five times the food to Benjamin. Again, good to be Benjamin. (laughs) He gets five times the food. Whole slew of appetizers to Benjamin. The rest of the brothers, they get their fill. But they do this whole meal thing, and then here's what Joseph says to them. He says, all right, here you go. Fill their bags with grain again. He's asked about their father. Now he wants to see Jacob. So he's trying to find a way to get there. Fill their bags with grain. Put all their silver back in the bags. But I want you to take my special cup, my cup, and put it in Benjamin's bag. And to get down the road a while, go stop them. Tell them somebody stole my cup. Bring them back to me. So that's what happens. He puts all the money in, all the grain in. Off go the brothers. They're like, we got Benjamin. We got grain. We got Quan. We, Dad is going to be happy with us. And then they hear probably the galloping of the horses behind them. Hey, stop. We got a very special cup missing. This was called the diviner's cup. This is a cup Joseph's not really supposed to have as an Israelite. But it was a special cup for making decisions. You kind of pour the oil in and then it would make a special pattern and you'd read the pattern. So we don't have any reason to think Joseph actually used the cup, but it's what he used in this case as a, as a way to frame them. So uh, Judah, the ever-dutiful son, says, we wouldn't steal from him. Are you crazy? Why would we do that? He's been so good to us. Joseph's captain goes, well, tell you what, let's open the bags and see, shall we? Judah goes, oh, absolutely. In fact, if that cup is in any one of our bags, feel free to kill that guy and take the rest of us as your slaves. And Joseph's, you know, captain already knows what's going on. He says, we're not going to kill anybody, uh, and I'm not t- taking all of you. I'm just going to take the one in whose sack the, the cup is found. So they open it up, and sure enough, it's in Benjamin's sack. And everybody goes crazy. They all tear their clothes with grief. Oh, no. Here's the fault in our stars, man. Dad, we were looking so good just a second ago. We had the money, we had the grain, and we had your favorite son back in tow. And now your favorite son is about to be taken as a prisoner for life, and we're all being hauled back in front of Joseph, and we don't know what's going to happen there. So they all get hauled back in front of Joseph, and then Judah gets up and begs Joseph to take him instead of Benjamin. It's a very riveting speech. He basically says, my dad is old and sad. You're not going to believe his first son must have been killed by a wild animal or something. We have no idea what happened to him, but he's already lost one kid. You don't want him to be sad and lose another kid, do you? Take me instead. Take me. I'll gladly be your slave. But please don't do it or he will die of his grief. He will be so devastated, it'll kill him. You can't let this happen. Okay, well, as he keeps grinding, all of a sudden, Joseph, just the emotional dam breaks. Genesis 45, 1 to 8. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants. And he, he cried out, have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him. And Pharaoh's household heard about it. Hey, man, Joseph's over there sobbing. I don't know what's wrong with the guy. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. 
Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother, Joseph, the one you sold in Egypt. And now don't be distressed and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there's been a famine in the land and for the next five years, there'll be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, Lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Okay, let's rewind the tape there. He's, Judah's gushing about Jacob. This is going to kill my dad. Please don't do this to him. Please don't do it. Take me, please. Take me, please. Will you take me, please, please? And Joseph just, the, the dam breaks. He sends everybody out. And then he looks at his brothers and he says, I'm Joseph. And then here's the direct quote of his brothers. End quote. That's it, okay? They're terrified. They're like, you know, maybe in Hebrew, somebody says, oops, or something. <laughs> it's like, uh-oh, that's even worse news than Benjamin having the cup in his sack. We're all toast now. And he goes, come here. And they're probably like, closer. <laughs> and he brings them in. And he wants to know if his dad is still living. And then he begins to interpret his pain through the lens of the work of God. Don't be angry with yourselves for selling me into slavery. It was part of God's plan as weird as it might be. In another spot, he'll say, you intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. God used that event to get me to Potiphar's house, used Potiphar's house and the imprisonment there to put me right next to Pharaoh so that I could save your lives. So the dream that I had when I was a little boy where, that you guys all threw me in the pit for, where I, everybody bowed down to me, that's already happened. But it wasn't because God wanted me to be this high and mighty guy that, that just was high and mighty for its own sake. He used it as a way of helping put me in a position to be a blessing to you and to help keep everybody in this kingdom fed. Joseph's not in the position he is. Pharaoh's dream's not interpreted. The famine hits with no grain saved and everybody starves to death. So God had used Joseph's suffering to that end and to that purpose. All right, well, what do we do here? Here's four quick things. Number one, if we follow, okay, God's dream will come to pass. As the book of Revelation says, what he shuts cannot be opened. What he opens can't be closed. Once God decides to do it, as we step into what he's wanting to do and we continue to follow, if it be his will, it will happen. No weapon that's fashioned against you will stand. Now, if you rebel against God, uh, Jonah can tell you that, that often that doesn't go as well. But if you decide that you're going to step into it, okay, the dream that God has for your life where he's trying to take you as a disciple of Jesus, even when you end up in the prison cell or even when you end up in a, in a place where you're the victim of somebody's uh, anger or injustice, that doesn't mean that God isn't going to use it, take the evil that was done there and use it eventually for good. 
Joseph finally sees it, that God has used his suffering to get him into a position to save his family and the rest of the people from starvation. So it's easy to believe, I think, for most of us that God would have a really nice kind of dream for our lives, but the why of it often gets missed. Joseph, this story, what Joseph's saying is, I was blessed to be a blessing. God put me in that position so that I would be right here, right now, in a position to be a blessing and to help you and to help others. And in the same way, when God blesses us with those kinds of victories and when he blesses us with those kinds of things, it's, it's often and usually designed for us to be able to be a blessing to others. We're saved by grace, for instance, to help other people meet the Savior and to testify to what we've seen with our eyes, touched with our hands, to walk in the light as he is in the light, and to do these things that help bring other, other people to glory. Sometimes the victory that God gives us over suffering is actually also an effort to equip uh, us to, to, to bless others. To sum it up, your pain is not pointless. It's not pointless. Okay? Number two, with regards to reconciliation, God has a very strong bias toward it. You can go slow, but go. Joseph could have done several things here. He could, brothers could have walked in. He could have tossed them some grain and sent them on their way and pretended that he didn't know. He knew they were out there, but he's not going to do anything about it or whatever. He's just going to barf it in private and then send them on their way. He could have killed all of them, wiped them out, no problem. Uh, you know, obscure Hebrew people, who's going to really notice? Who's going to care? Pharaoh didn't care. He said, whatever you decide to do is fine with anybody. But nobody does anything without your say-so. He has total control, the largest military in the world at the time. He has full control. And instead, he makes the decision to kind of test the waters a little bit with his brothers. And I actually think one of the reasons he sends them on all these errands is because I don't think he knows what to do. I think he's so shocked at the beginning that he almost needs some time to think. I know that sounds a little, a little bit strange, but he's like, I mean, he weeps and everything, and he's like, tell you what, go back and get your brother. Go back and get Benjamin. Meantime, Simeon, you and I can have a talk for the next two years while they're going to get Benjamin, and they're eating through the grain. But it's like he's almost, he's almost kind of caught off guard by it, but he, he sends them on these, on these errands. Okay, now go back and get Benjamin. Okay, now back. Now he's going to say, go back and get Dad. Bring him back. Right? You can, emotional wounds are like torn muscles, okay? You, you don't notice that they're there if you just look at somebody. They look fine. But if you see them in action, you're going to notice this, right? It's under the surface, though. You can't tell by just seeing a picture of them. That's how it is. We bury those things, they, and they're not always obvious on the exterior, uh, and if we have the choice, usually, we will almost always pick the long-term dull pain that we manage as opposed to the short-term acute pain that gets rid of it all, rid, rid of all the pain. Uh, world-renowned therapist Edwin Friedman wrote this. He said, there is no way out of a chronic condition unless one is willing to go through an acute, temporarily more painful phase. This is a universal principle of emotional process that transcends the social science construction of reality. Hang in there. Here's, what, here's the gold. Whether we are considering a toothache, a tumor, a relational bind, a technical problem, crime, the economy, most individuals and most social systems, irrespective of their culture, gender, or ethnic background, 
will naturally choose or revert to chronic conditions of bearable pain rather than face the temporarily more intense anguish of acute conditions that are the gateway to becoming free. And he adds, what's also true is that chronic conditions, precisely because they're more bearable, also tend to be more withering over time. I'm fine. It's fine. Fine. You're fine. It's fine. That's fine. I'm fine. We're fine. I'm fine. You're fine. It's fine. Everybody's fine. Your tooth bothering? Yeah. Why don't you go to the dentist? That's fine. Uh, How's your marriage? Yeah, we just celebrated 15 years. Under the surface, they haven't slept in the same bedroom in three years. Fine. But it's fine. It's fine. We're together, aren't we? We're fine. It's fine. Haven't paid your bills on time all at once in, in months. How's your finance? Oh, fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's going to be fine. Everybody's fine. How are you getting along with your coworkers? Fine. Well, because I noticed that you're, you know, you're never, you're never where you're supposed to be. And you, you, every time we have coffee, you complain about this person. But fine. It's fine. It's going to be, it's fine. What about your relationship with your kids? Well, you know, you know what? They're having a phase. Uh, they're going to be fine. Uh, but how does that make you feel as a parent that your kid's going through that? Oh, you know what? I, I'm fine. Manageable, chronic, dull pain. And what Joseph does here is instructive, I believe, for us. Because if we're not careful, that becomes a pattern of unhealth that rides with us as we hike in Justice Mountain. Uh, you've heard me use the term collusion in here before. That's where I act this way, you act that way. And the reason I act the way I do is because you act that way. So I act this way, which reinforces you acting that way. And we're in this cycle. We call them like vicious cycles and things like that. But really, it's collusion. I need you to keep acting that way so that I can keep acting this way. So if you actually act uh, better, I'm going to start acting in ways that try to get you to start misbehaving again. Because I'm now an injustice collector. And I need my backpack full so that I can survive my hike up Injustice Mountain. Because as long as I'm hiking that mountain... I can manage the dull burn in my thighs that comes from me resenting people, me being a victim of life. I don't have to do what Joseph does here. I don't have to take any steps toward you. I don't have to have any delicate conversations with you. I just keep going. And every day that this thing doesn't get any better, I put another little thing of grain in the backpack for my hike. And I keep building resentment. I keep doing whatever. Now, Joseph, keep in mind, has already said that God has set him free from this. He gives God thanks. He names one of his kids. God help me forget. But that doesn't mean the pain's gone. So he cries the second they recount the story to him. He cries again when he sees Benjamin. And then he cries again here when he finally tells them who he is. I am Joseph. The pain's not gone just because you take a step in reconciliation. 
And some of us have been wounded so deeply and so profoundly and so vividly in, in horrible, horrible ways that the best, the best thing might be to go very, very, very cautiously. So maybe one way to put it would be put the cup in the bag. Take a step. It's Joseph's way of trying it out. It's a way of him making a step in reconciliation. He could have done all of this as soon as they walked in. Guys, this is unreal. It's me, Joseph. Aren't you happy to see me? He could have done that the second they walked in, but he doesn't. He tells them on round three. After years have passed. So you don't have to sprint. You don't have to go jump into the deep end of the pool. You do need to know where the pool is located, and you do need to own a bathing suit. You see what I'm saying? So as you do it, you don't have to go jump all the way in on these things, but you need to be making those steps. Write the note. Accept the invitation this time. Pick up the phone. Return the call. Put the cup in the bag like he does with Benjamin. Leave the door open. Lastly, choose your tears. The first round of tears that Joseph gives is mourning. He's sad. You can tell he's, he's sad that they lost those years with his brothers. He's sad of what had been done to him. Round two is emotion. It's I'm seeing my baby brother who I love again for the first time. And, and one of those things, that little details of this that you may have forgotten, you know, Benjamin is born and Rachel dies giving birth to Benjamin. So it probably rips that scab open of his lo having lost his mom, too. But he's over, overcome. And then the third, those are tears of joy. Okay? Resentment, pain, emotion, joy. But if you've been hurt by others or you've hurt somebody else, you're going to have the opportunity, by the power of God, to choose your tears. Do I want those? Do I want to spend my life crying over the loss? Do I want to spend my, the rest of my life crying tears of joy that God helped me reconcile to my long-lost family? Now, in, uh, we'll talk about this a little bit more next week. There are some exceptions to this. There are. But for most of us, it is just far easier to have the dull pain of alienation from people than it is to go through the short-term acute pain of trying to reconcile. This happened to me yesterday. I was at the gym, pulled an upset, went to the gym. <laughs> I went across the gym. I see somebody that had, had hurt me pretty deeply in the past, way on the other side of the gym. So I did what real men do. I ignored them and, uh, and tried not to make eye contact, and I went about my my exercise regimen, okay? So instead of going up doing what I should have done, which was say hi and do everything, and just kind of like maybe start building the bridge, avoid it. What was I thinking about while I was working out? That, dull pain. I can manage it, no problem. I'll finish my workout and I'll go home, right? When I, got, when I left the gym, I must have stopped thinking about it, right? No, you take it with you. That's what that does, right? It's fine. It's fine. There's a gym. He's a gym. It's fine. Everybody's fine. Manage the dull pain instead of the short-term acute pain of getting it done, and then it's over. All right? 
Pick your tears. But if you're a Christian, and we'll talk about this more next week, there is a call on your life to forgive that comes from the blood of Jesus. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Jesus tells a parable, the unforgiving servant, man who's forgiven a very small debt by somebody, then goes out and basically starts choking out somebody who, who, who owes, actually a very large debt he's forgiven. This guy owes him something small, and he goes and tries to take it out on the guy that owes him a little bit of money. And so the guy that had forgiven him a large debt goes and grabs this guy and has him thrown in jail. And the illustration of the point is don't, you can't um, call, you can't claim the grace of God and the forgiveness of God and then hold grudges and, not, and fail to forgive those around you. When you're a Christian and you fall on the grace of God, okay, and, and God says, I will forgive you all of your sins, not just at this moment, but in perpetuity. And then we decide that we're going to hold a grudge and not forgive our brother, our sister, our mom, our dad, our child, our whatever. I, won't, I don't know that we always grasp how fully blasphemous that is to God. The parable of the unforgiving servant makes it very clear. Occasionally, I'll have a child come up to me and say, Pastor Tim, do you think that dogs go to heaven? And I'll say, you know, I, you know honestly, I don't know. Another kid might come up and ask, do you think cats are going to go to heaven? Of course not, I say. And then we, we move on. But I have basis for this. I want you to meet this cat here. Put him up. Now, that is not grumpy cat. Some of you are going, that's Grumpy Cat. It's not. This is Roger. His name is Roger, and he is known as Judgy Cat, which is different than Grumpy Cat. Grumpy Cat is always has a sour disposition. This is Roger. Roger was the name given to Judgy Cat, okay? Now, look at that cat. I mean, I mean, it, it, so many emotions are communicated through that face, right? Well, well, why are you home late? Where's my dinner? I mean, you've got to caption this thing almost infinitely, all right? So here's Roger, judgy cat. Now, here's a scientific study I can get behind. Headline, research shows cats never forgive. Judgy cat, here we go. Scientists have observed conciliatory behavior in many different animal species. The bulk of the research has been on primates, like bonobos, mountain gorillas, and chimps, who often follow confrontations with friendly behavior, like embracing or kissing. Scientists have observed similar behaviors in non-primates, like goats and hyenas. The only species that has so far failed to show outward signs of reconciliation are domestic cats. That's it. The only species, domestic cats. Well, they're really not the only species capable of this, are they? I mean, not really. We're pretty good. Uh, I know people who haven't spoken to their mom or their dad in 30 years. By choice, 
because they're mad. Choose your tears. God's given you that ability through the power of the gospel. I'm not speaking to my my ex-husband ever again. Okay, well, maybe maybe that's a good thing, but but make sure that in as much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone, the scriptures say. You can't control their part. You can control your own in as much as it depends on you, in as much as it depends on you, in as much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And when it comes down to forgiving the sins of others, even things that have been, I mean, are way over the top. We'll talk about some of the, the caveats or the exceptions to these things next week when we, when we kind of continue this. Uh, but, but most of us aren't really in that camp. We hold the grudge against the guy who made us buy the socks and put, on the, put them on under the flip-flops, right? I'm never going back there again. Well, that's an option. Manage that dull pain. Instead of doing what God would have us to do, just to forgive as we've been forgiven. So there's something here in Joseph's tears that drives us toward reconciliation. He has all the power. He could squash them with a simple flick of his wrist. He could make Jacob lose all of his kids. Or he could go and fault his father for it. If you had control of your house better, this wouldn't happen to me. And he could have gone and said, you know what? Uh, I want to look up. There's a guy named Potiphar. And and ask him to bring his wife with him, too, when he comes to the palace. I want to have a word with her. But he doesn't. And there's something in the Scripture that's trying to point us and kind of hold it up and say, This is something that pleases God. So, we will not be Roger the cat. (laughs) We will not be like our lesser selves. But the gospel calls us to to forgive. Right now we're going to take communion. We do this every week here at New Vintage. It's a gospel meal. It's a time when we remember the death of Jesus And if you're looking for something that calls us to forgive those who who sin against us, look no further than the table, which remembers the body and blood of Jesus that were given for us, the guilty. And it was given that we might be reconciled to God. So if you ever want to know how much God cares about reconciliation, look at the cross, look at the table that we're gathering around right now. Um. So we'll take this. And by the way, if you didn't get the elements and you'd like some, we have ushers that have them. And just put your hand in the air like that. We'll bring them to you. Um, but as we do it, I want you to think. You probably know who these people are. If, if you've got a whole spectrum and, and Injustice Mountain is crowded uh, in your life, your backpack's full, then start somewhere. You don't have to do them all today, <laughs> but, but, but start. Okay, T- take the step. Start with a, with, with a friend or a coworker or a, a brother or sister or something like that, okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, with bread and cup, we say thank you. We say thank you for forgiving us as we forgive those who sin against us. Father, in the story of Joseph, we see uh, the beauty of, of what forgiveness can look like and the beauty of reconciliation as opposed to vengeance. And so, Father, help us to understand that we were not given what we deserve. 
uh, we were given what you wanted us to have, which was mercy. And for your mercy, Father, we give you thanks, and we say yes to reconciliation, whatever that looks like in our lives. Guide us, help us, strengthen us as we pursue it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.